Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, March the 2nd, 2023, um, and we're back on the Jews. We've done a number of shows on uh, Jewish culture, Jewish politics, on Israel. We did a, an interesting show uh, a couple of months ago with the American writer Emily Tampkin on the politics of American Jewish identity. Uh, she had a interesting new book out or has an interesting new book out bad jews a history of american jewish politics and identities the idea of bad jews of course suggests they're also good jews and the notion of bad and good jews is of course a trope used often by people who discriminate against jewish people i'm not quite convinced there are either good or bad jews but there are traditional and liberal jews jews who struggle with um, the culture of their ancestors. Uh, and we talked about that a couple of years ago with Nomi Stolzenberg, who wrote a book called American Shtetl, The Making of Curious Joel, a Hasidic village in upstate New York. I think what coexists um, is this struggle between tradition and modernity uh, when it comes to Jewish tradition, Jewish culture, and perhaps even uh, individual Jews. That's something that we're talking about today with my guest, um, Corey Ajmi. Um, she has a new book out, a novel. It's her second novel. It's called The Marriage Box, and it's about the struggle of a young uh, Syrian-American uh, Jewish woman uh, around the issue of assimilation and tradition. She's joining us from uh, New York City today. Um, Corey, have I uh, accurately described your novel or is that an inaccuracy? No, that was actually perfect. That was exactly a great description of the book. So tell me a little bit more. As I said, uh, this is your second uh, book. Your, uh, your, your first uh, collection of short stories was uh, a big hit, uh, Life and Other Shortcomings. You've come to writing relatively late in life. Um, is this book uh, in any way autobiographical, The Marriage Box? The Marriage Box is um, based on my real life. So the real story is I grew up in New Orleans, and I grew up as a Reformed Jew. And at 16, my family decided to move back to Brooklyn, where both my parents were born and raised, to the Orthodox Syrian Jewish community in Brooklyn. And um, I was pretty much unfamiliar with this uh, background. And it was culture shock. And um, I took a lot of uh, uh, time and effort and uncomfortable moments to learn the rules of this new place. Uh, one being that my parents wanted me to get married really young at 18. And as much as I um, said I wouldn't do that, I did. And this book is about that journey. It's about the culture clash, the culture shock, and struggling to find your way in a community that has um, expectations. Were your parents first-generation uh, Syrian immigrants? No, no. They're both uh, third-generation. 
So it's quite distant, but did they, it seems as if they, and maybe this isn't the right word, clung to the tradition or embraced the tradition. Often these traditions get lost, particularly in America, in what was once known as the melting pot, although that idea of the melting pot, I think now is rather more controversial. Exactly. Um, so in the 60s, when they moved to New Orleans from Brooklyn, after they got married, they went there for work reasons. They had let go a lot of the, with, from a lot of the traditions. They didn't keep them. We didn't keep kosher. We went to synagogue only on the high holidays. And um, we did things pretty much the American way. I went to a really fabulous school. I was a cheerleader. And so this move back to a more traditional life um, was quite a jolt. Have you, uh, I, I assume you haven't seen the Stoltenberg, the Stoltenberg uh, book on um, American Shtetl, but um, how would you explain this split? Is it uniquely Jewish or do you think most immigrant communities, whether they're Indian or Pakistani or Greek or Italian or Irish um, or Haitian, uh, all go through the same thing of, of either embracing the modernity of America or clinging to their traditions? Well, I think it's more complicated than that. And that's what I wanted to explore in this book. Because um, even within the Orthodox Jewish community, there's such a range of how people practice and what they believe. And I feel like TV and um, books often portray Orthodox Jews in a certain view, from a certain point of view and through a certain lens. And in this book, I'm showing a different kind of orthodox observance. So tell us about that different view. What, what do you think the traditional view, maybe the stereotype gets wrong? Well, in, in this community, um, the, we do not dress the way TV often um, depicts the way people dress. Um, and we do not live by all the same rules. It's a little bit more of, um, a, you know, bringing in some of the modern ways of the world and also sticking to tradition. So we eat a lot of traditional foods and we keep the Sabbath every week. Um, but there's a wide range in Judaism, like Ashkenaz Jews who come from Europe and Sephardic Jews who come from the Middle East. Um, even within those communities, the, there are very big differences. Um, when I came to the Syrian community in the 80s, one of the things that was different was um, this Syrian community doesn't value education in the same way people typically think of Jews valuing education. This community was very um, strong on hard work. That's changed over the last 40 years. Um, people now do go to college and education is more valued. But I'm just trying to um, illuminate that within all these different, um, different segments of the Jewish community, and even within the Orthodox community, things vary. Coming back to the novel, um, Corey, The Marriage Box, um, it's about a young woman of course, in, in the American modern tradition, people marry out of love, out of sexual passion, romantic inclination. Um, did you yourself, was your marriage 
again, I have to be careful with this word, arranged by your parents? It was not, no. It happened to have been a blind date. My husband's brother set us up. I met him somewhere and he asked if I'd go out with his brother. But it was a love marriage. We met, we started to date, we fell in love and decided to get married. Is it still a love marriage? I know you wrote about you, you and your husband no longer sharing a bedroom. <laughs> it is a love marriage. And that is just because he snores. <laughs> would, he, uh, would he agree with that? Yes, he would agree with that. I mean, we have plenty of time we, we are together. And it's just um, literally just to be able to get a good night's sleep. So let's go back to your fictional heroine. Um, tell me what her name is and, and tell me a little bit about her. Uh, her name is Casey and she um, tends to uh, be spontaneous and also wants to please her parents, but has a bit of a, uh, a, a longing for adventure. And as she grows, wants to find her own way. So she's having a difficult time uh, transitioning into adulthood and figuring out what does she want to take from her family and her community's expectations and what does she want to leave behind. What did you, you, you mentioned that there's an element of autobiography in this novel. Um, what did you learn about yourself from writing it, about your own upbringing and perhaps some of the struggles that you shared with Casey? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I think the the best part of this writing process was um, dealing with some of the, I hate to use the word trauma because I don't want to throw it around so loosely, but um, it was a surprising, difficult moment in my life because at 16, um, I was just finishing my sophomore year in high school. And like I said, I was a cheerleader. And it's a time you're forming your identity. And so what I thought I was going to do was go off to college. And so to have what felt like the rug being pulled out from under me, that we now were going to move into this new community where the rules were totally different, um, that I, I, there was a lot to deal with. And learning the rules was sometimes humorous and sometimes painful. And writing about all of that helped me to see it from a different perspective, change the narratives where I needed to, um, have empathy and understanding for the decisions my parents made, and just to see um, lots of different points of view instead of just my own. And to study the community and that time in the 80s when I came and just it was a wonderful therapeutic process in a lot of ways. Growing up in New Orleans must have been interesting. It's not a, it's certainly not a, a, a typical um... American city. Exactly. New Orleans is fabulous. I mean, how I grew up, um, like I said, I was in a really great school. And so that was like my community. And um, my neighborhood was just wonderful. Um, every time I think of it, I just picture myself like riding my bike around like it was just a really um, innocent kind of childhood. And then like there was the French Quarter. And there was Bourbon Street and um, lots of live music and Mardi Gras and Jazz Fest and lots of culture and um, a lot of fun. New Orleans is a lot of fun. 
Are most of the characters um, in the marriage box, are they fictional Jewish characters? I know you wrote that um, you sometimes feel guilty about the flawed, and you, that's your word, flawed Jewish characters in, in your literature. Um, do you struggle, maybe not with uh, representing bad Jews, but at least uh, flawed Jews? Well, I wrote that essay just as... Um an exploration about thoughts that I had never had before. So when I wrote Life and Other Shortcomings, um, some of my characters are Jewish. And just like in every book and like every person, some of the characters did bad things. And um, it didn't occur to me not to have them do bad things. I mean, you want to keep your writing exciting. You want to have obstacles. And sometimes it's interesting to explore the dark sides of people. But after Life and Other Shortcomings um, came out, anti-Semitism has been on the rise. Um, it was the first time I thought, like, am I adding fuel to the fire here? What am I doing? I mean, in the end, I would never really change how I write because I do believe it's these stories that connect people. And realistically, we're all flawed. And um, I hope my reader understands that and that, um, just like everybody else, these people have a story, they have a background, they have their own traumas and histories. And, and the interesting part of writing, I think, is to understand others, whether they're Jewish or not. And so I do believe you learn by reading, build empathy by reading, make connections when reading. And so I think it's important, if anything, more than ever to tell these stories and to have all our voices be heard. You mentioned uh, reading and writing quite a lot already in this conversation, Corey. Uh, how important is it in terms of your narrative? Um, you've written all sorts of tips about how to be a successful author. You've done it. You did it, I wouldn't say late in life, but certainly later than many other writers. Was becoming a writer critical to your own narrative, to, to figuring out who you were, and getting beyond, if you like, the marriage box? Absolutely. Um, so I didn't start out wanting to be a writer. It didn't come to me until much later. But it's absolutely an important part of my journey. I think um, I, I needed to find a way to have my voice be heard. And writing was the way I was able to do that. A books in a way like for you children um you're certainly someone who's really focused on food and uh entertaining and giving pleasure to your children you also wrote recently about your pleasure in in being at your your grandchild's birth uh during covid you became a doula um are books and children in in an odd way i'd say similar but uh comparable that's interesting. Again, um, well, I'm about to give birth to this book, although this book took me 20 years, so a lot longer than um, it takes to give birth to a human. Um, but I, I, I think there is um, a delight to both, that's for sure. And um, I do think that like, when you look at things through a child's eyes, you see the world differently. And when you look at the world through a writer's eyes. It makes you observe more carefully as well. So that's an interesting connection. What 
I, I don't want to give away all the secrets in the book, but what becomes of Casey? I don't want to give away the secrets either. So Casey has to find her way, and um, the reader will have to read the book to find out what she decides. But she does struggle, and uh, you, as a reader, can laugh along with her as she figures out who she is and how she's going to live her life. Um, as I said, you've you've been interviewed about um, your your work, both the first and the second book, or about you writing about the lives of women in pursuit of self acceptance and, and empowerment. Mm -hmm. We just did a show this morning, actually, with uh, Andrea Dunlop, uh, a book about the fear, fierceness of women. She's quite an explicit and outspoken feminist. I'm guessing, uh, Corey, you're slightly less explicit, but perhaps in your own way, just as determined to stick up and represent uh, women's rights. Is that fair? That is very fair. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely uh, hope to hold up um, the light for others to see that um, we are here. We want to be treated fairly. We want to be heard. And I do think in some ways writing is an, an act of um, rebellion or power or um, advocacy so that um, we can be seen and heard. Did you have, when you were growing up in New Orleans in your uh, Syrian Jewish family, um, did you have brothers? I have one younger brother. Yeah, he's three years younger than I am. And I have a little sister who's almost 14 years younger than I am. And I assume your brother was treated very differently from you. Um, yes, I, you know, in some ways, yeah, the expectation, I think it was, it was, um, I don't know if it was actually said out loud, but it was that he would work and make money and be the breadwinner of his family. And I would get married and have children. Are your parents still around? Yes, they are. And have they read uh, marriage books? Yes, they have. And what do they think? They like it a lot. <laughs> they, they think it's funny and poignant and, um, you know, realistic enough that it depicts a certain side of this community, but also um, it's fiction. So they found the delightful part of it, too. So you didn't give away too much about your upbringing. They weren't in any way embarrassed or angry. Oh no, no, it's really, it really is fiction. Even though it's based on the, the premise that I told you, the things that happen in the book are totally made up. And um, what do your kids think of it? I know you've got four children. I have five. Five. Yeah. Wow, five. I forgot about yeah. one of them. Well, and six, if you or seven actually, if you include the two books. <laughs> That's true. Uh, three boys, two girls, and my two daughters have read the book already, and my sons have not. I wonder why. Did you give him? Uh, <laughs> did you give it to them? Did I give it to them? Not yet. No. Are you a little nervous about your sons? Yeah, I'm. I'm really not. I, you know, I'm, I'm not. I think they will like the book, and um, they know who I am, and they know my opinions. So they're not going to be too surprised. And, and I assume your, your husband's read the book. Oh, of course, yes. Finally, Corey, um, as you say, your family's been in, in the U.S. for 
three or four generations. But of course, Syria today is, is, is a land of terrible tragedy, probably the worst place in the world. We've done a number of shows on the tragedy of Syria, one with the CNN correspondent Clarissa Ward, another with Joby Warwick um, of the Washington Post about the decimation of Syrian cities, another about with Daniel Levin and hopelessness of Syria's uh, war economy. Um, do you have a particular um, sensibility given your heritage? when it comes to what's happening in Syria today? Well, I never like to see any part of the world devastated. Um, so that's upsetting. Um, I, I don't necessarily have an affinity to Syria. It just feels very foreign to me. Um, we had the opportunity to possibly go there. Now I can't remember how many years ago. Um, must have been like seven or eight right before the real craziness started. And it was really like almost to the month that we had to not go. I was actually afraid to go even then, but my husband wanted to go and we were talking about it. And then it became something that wasn't even an option. Is your husband also from a, a Syrian family? Yes. Mm -hmm. We also did a show uh, a few months ago about uh, Edmund Safra, hmm. um, book by uh, uh, a Banker's Journey by Daniel Gross. Edmund Safra grew up, I think, in Syria. There seems to be something particularly international and rich about the Syrian Jewish community, which, of course, no longer exists. Do you know much about it? Have you done much research or reading? About what? About the Syrian Jewish community, which no longer really exists. That's the community I'm writing about. That's the community I'm from. But right, but from Syria itself, I mean... The, the my ancestors are from Syria. The last... Uh, my grandparents came in the early 1900s, and I think the last wave of Syrians to come from Syria, Syrian Jews, um, was in the late 80s. Right, um, so my, my question is, I mean, obviously not everyone is like Edmund Safra, but what's your take on, on that community? When you look back, it no longer exists. Was there something unique about it, even in the context of the Jewish diaspora? So um, from I go to the Safra synagogue that is just a few blocks away from my apartment. This is still a thriving community that um, all the ancestors, I mean, I know, I don't know if they're his children or grandchildren, but I know them who they live in the city. They live in Manhattan. 